Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, session 464. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 464 you're listening to. My guest today is Grammy-nominated producer, mixer, and writer. I'm talking about Damian Taylor, who's based out of Los Angeles. He's worked with Bjork, The Prodigy, The Killers, Arcade Fire, and many others. And I'm going to do what I always do. I'm going to do a deep dive into Damian's journey. We're going to talk about all kinds of stuff, and I think you're going to learn some great stuff here on this episode. As always, very much looking forward to it. Damian Taylor here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about practice, practice, practice. Yep, I'm talking about practicing like musicians practice. If you were a pro drummer, a pro bass player, whatever, or even if you were an up-and-comer, even if you're an amateur, what would you do? You would practice. You would practice all the time so that your fingers or your arms and hands, your limbs, or you know, your embouchure, like uh, all that stuff, if you're a horn player, um, you would practice because you want to get better. You want to discover new heights of your playing you want to break through blockages in how you play your instrument. And even as a professional, you do it. If I have this correct, I believe even Neil Pert had a teacher that he would regularly meet with in his later years. So if someone like that can be practicing and have a teacher, a mentor, at that late stage of the game where you've had a career and a half, then we all should be doing it. Now, this is working class audio, so I'm assuming all of you listening are audio people, or most of you are li- listening are audio people. So how does that pertain to us? Every time you sit down to record or mix or master something, it doesn't necessarily have to be for money. It can be for the sake of practicing. You know, in this day and age when we all hoard uh, digital files or can download multi-track files, let's just take mixing because that's how I'm kind of fixated on it for the moment. If you've got some spare time in your hands, maybe it's time to pull up some old multi-tracks that you've got or that you download from the internet and sit down and try some things. This would be the time to exercise different wacky ideas and try to mix with a different perspective. And maybe even set a goal for yourself. That day, you're gonna mix the song in three completely different ways, and you're gonna give yourself two hours of mix, right? If you've got that much time in your hands. Hell, even if you only have an hour, set the timer and say go, and then mix, and try to see what comes of it. The the whole point is to try new ideas, to try different techniques, to break yourself out of routine so that you can get up to the next plateau and understand how your ears and your brain work a little better. It seems pretty straightforward to me. While I don't actively play drums when I did, that's what I would do all the time. 
practice, 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 to try to get better, to try to improve technique, to try to break on through to new heights of playing. And I remember distinctly in my years as a drummer, in my very early years, of breaking through to different plateaus where you try playing something that you had trouble playing before and you realize, oh my gosh, that comes with such ease now. Why is that? And then you have this awareness that, wow, okay, I've I've graduated to another level here. Try that with your mixing practice. Try that with your mastering practice. If you're uh, primarily a recording engineer, spend some time recording, get some people over and record. You know, on occasion, it's okay to just say, to get on the phone, call up some friends and say, hey, let's meet up at this place and try to do some recording. Someplace where it's inexpensive and you can just try some ideas, whether it's guitar overdubs, uh, it doesn't have to be a full band, you know? Maybe you have a drummer friend, you can meet at their practice space, bring some mics and a, and a little recording setup and try some ideas, try some different mic placements, see how that works. If you deal in dialogue, you know, I'm sure that that's a little more routine than the music thing, but you want to try a new mic, you want to try a new placement that you typically don't because you're probably dealing with high-end clients and you don't want to practice on the clients. You want to go with the tried and true. Therefore, bring a friend over who's got a nice voice. Have them come over to your booth and have them talk away, read a book, read a story. The point is, is practice try different stuff and do it in the off hours because you know what you don't have to complete something let's say you start a mix and you're like well i'm going to just try some different plugins or try some different techniques or try some different routing you know just to see how it works doesn't mean you've got to complete the mix although that can be a good exercise in itself i think you all get the point and i think that it's something that we as audio professionals don't always do some of us do it, not all of us, but it's something that even if you're at the top level of your game, you could easily sit down and do some practicing. I think we all could use a little practice, right? Try some different ideas. Anyways, that's it. Practice, practice, practice all the time, anytime you get the chance and see how it affects what you do in the real world. That's my rant. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. 
They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button, at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. Let's get to it. Damian Taylor here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Damien, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Matt. Nice to be here. Yeah, nice to meet you. I always start this the same way. That is, where did you grow up? How, how long is this podcast? Because it is actually a <laughs> long and boring story. But the TLDR is my parents are British. I was born in Canada. We lived in three different cities in Canada. When I was 10, we moved to New Zealand. I lived in three different towns and cities there. Then when I was 19, I moved to London and got into studios over there. Went back to Canada on the West Coast for a couple of years, then did a bunch of years in Montreal, and now I'm down in LA. I know that's beyond growing up, but everyone's probably wondering what the hell the weird accent is, so we'll just get that out of the way. So I'm not just transatlantic, I'm like pan-oceanic. Wow. Kind of thing, yeah. So yeah, London was like the eighth, seventh, eighth place I lived, so I've just moved around a ton. Were your parents in the military at all? My dad was originally military. Him and my mom actually met in Hong Kong. She was a teacher, so she was hanging out in kibbutzes. They're from, yeah, she's from Liverpool, but she was hanging out in kibbutzes in the 60s. And then, like, she was in Hong Kong as a teacher. And it was one of the kind of, sorry, apologies, very colonial British thing where it's like they would do a mixer between the, the military and the, the civilians or whatever under the empire. And they met at one of those. And actually, they got married like six weeks later. And then, you know, they were in Northern Ireland during the Troubles and then Germany. And then when they left the army, this was like the mid-70s. The UK was in an absolute shitstorm. Strikes everywhere. And they're like, we're not going back there. So they thought they'd try Canada. And then in a way, our whole childhood growing up and stuff like that was there going, yeah, this is cool, but it's a bit cold. This is cool. It's a bit remote. So they're constantly moving. And then even when I was actually a teenager, when I was 15, I moved up to Auckland in New Zealand and they moved to Saudi Arabia. So pre-internet, I had my parents on the other side of the world. And that gave me the freedom to have a couple of years in this elderly couple's basement, I sold my mountain bike, bought a four track, was obsessed with the records. And that's how I got really into recording and figured out that I wanted to be a record producer. Did you have the thing where you're moving around so much, you got really good at making new friends pretty quick? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. I, I always found it like a, a really exciting adventure. 
So I love, I love moving. Then even like as part of my work, spent a lot of time in different countries. So for me, actually, I find like that layering of cultures and what it's like listening to something from one place and another place, that kind of like cultural, textural, societal collisions or the meeting points I find really fascinating. So it's been a, a constant inspiration for me on all levels. Did you have any siblings or have siblings? Uh, older brother who didn't go into music. <laughs> He's a arborist in the Melbourne City Council. Yeah, he's the one who would tell me I was a fucking nerd and a geek and he would bring home like Beastie Boys cassettes and be like, this is cool. You're not allowed to have this one and all that kind of stuff in the nicest possible way. But yeah, just pretty self-contained unit. Yeah. <laughs> what a brother. Yeah. I mean, it's what older brothers are for, right? Right. They got to toughen you up for the studio system. Did you play instruments growing up in school bands? Yeah, I played a ton of instruments to like grade five high school level. So one of the high schools I was at was in the South Island of New Zealand, which is very, very remote, Matt, long way away, mm. especially pre-internet. So it had a boarding wing, which would be most of the kids who grew up on farms in the Southern Alps and that kind of thing. And then a few town boys and that kind of stuff. I think it was the second oldest school in New Zealand and they had a massive pipe organ and Mr. and Mrs. Brown, full respect to them. There's a brass band, a wind band, a concert band, a symphony orchestra and something else. And I wound up playing in all of those. So I played trumpet cornet, flute, and double bass. Then when I was around 14, 15, I just realized I hated all of the music and every single lunchtime and after school was a rehearsal. I also played in the Nelson Symphony Orchestra, a very small town, but I played third trumpet in Elgar's cello concerto and then just stopped. And then like grunge happened the next year. And then my folks moved to Saudi Arabia. I moved up to Auckland and bought a bass guitar and then got into recording from there, saved up enough, bought a little cheap court guitar. And then when I moved out of this couple's apartment, the last year of high school, I got a, a, I missed the leavers due or whatever graduation. I just got a job selling books door to door. So went straight into living on my own kind of thing or living, you know, flat mating, room mating and bought a drum kit eventually. And that's, I did a couple of years at SAE, two nights a week, five nights a week waiting on tables and decided it was time to move to London by the end of all that. So I played everything to a certain level, but as soon as I got into studios, I always knew that the recording was my focus, but I've had enough of a background of playing everything, but playing everything really badly. So I'm a terrible musician, but I consider myself very musical, if that makes sense. Yeah. You know, you don't have to be an expert in any of those to have a great understanding and a great empathy for those that you're working with. I'm sure you would agree. Yeah. It's nice to know how it feels to play instruments and all that kind of stuff. And even, you know, I do a lot of stuff with electronics, so it's nice to know what dynamics feel like in a group. And I actually, especially looking back, right at getting to play in large ensembles. If anyone's played in a brass band, it's like the third trumpet plays the offbeat eighth notes. And when you're first looking at a score and you're 12, you're like, I do not understand this at all. This makes no sense. But after a few months of playing, you kind of figure out how everyone locks together. So you can kind of hear your part and how it locks in with everyone else. And you play in a bigger orchestra and you're hearing quite dense interwoven arrangements and instruments. So even now, if I'm thinking about like arrangements, it's just like, oh, we need the euphoniums, even though I'm not using any euphoniums <laughs> or, or we, need, we need the flutes or, you know, so it's kind of nice just in, in terms of a very visceral experience of how stuff fits together. Oh, it's coming back, the euphonium. Oh man, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's very in style these days. Did you ever play in rock bands that actively toured? I was Bjork's musical director for the Volta tour. So our second show was headlining Coachella. Mm -hmm. um, so I did live electronics for all that. 
which I'm great at, but my role with her was she had the vision for how everything fit together. Real talk, like I could run a spreadsheet. So I think that's the main reason I was there, but I could talk to the band, the crew, to her and kind of fit it all together. And then we had Mark Bell, rest in peace of LFO. He was doing electronics, built the beats and bass. So he was kind of the rhythm section. We had this guy, Chris Corsano, who's a noise improv drummer, but he would play like toast racks with toothbrushes and rolls of sticky tape. So not like a traditional drummer, he'd make noises. We had a 10-piece all-female brass section between the ages of 18 and 25. Then one of Bjork's old friends, a guy called Jonas Sen, who was half Icelandic, half Chinese, and he was a virtuoso keyboard player. So we'd figure out what everyone else was doing, what was going to run on a stem, and then I'd fill in the gaps, doing kind of more like musical electronic stuff. So I also wound up playing this instrument called the Reactable. I'm like the world's fifth Reactable player. People may have seen this back in the day. It's this big glowing tabletop that lights up and you put these blocks on it and you can see the waveform and kind of like a cross between a guitar pedal patch board and modular synthesis, but live on this big table with a real-time display. So I have done that situation as you well. You have. And that's a very unique situation. And I'm curious, what are the takeaways from that experience in terms of what did you learn out of working not only with Bjork, but just corralling everybody? Oh gosh, out of the corralling. Well, What's the way to put this? I think this is the same of recording music as well as performance, but it's to keep pushing until it clicks. And the difference between something not clicking and clicking might be imperceptible, but you kind of know when it works. There's the imperceptible shift. To be honest, the biggest thing I learned working with Bjork live, I learned endless things working with her. We worked together for many years as her sidekick, her engineer, her sonic butler or whatever but for me playing with her live it was this combination of understanding it is simple powerful big gestures even though there's 15 of us on stage Mm -hmm. it was really like when things get quiet and she hits a note that's when everyone goes ah it's not like oh when there's 28 layers and everything's really intricate so even in terms of how my live setup worked i started off the first couple of weeks of rehearsals with a million layers on my computer And then by the end of it, wound up with one or two that you could be very gestural and expressive with. So in other words, it's less things, more expression equals impact rather than more things that are kind of operating in smaller, smaller playing fields. You want to give everyone a bit more space. Was that kind of an aha moment for you in terms of, you know, you go through life, you, you play music, you record, you... You have these moments where you have an epiphany and and you realize, oh, I've just mentally conquered some new part of my abilities. Mm -hmm. Was that like that for you? I mean, playing with her was was very interesting. It's kind of multi-layered because prior to that, I wound up being the silent member of a couple of breakbeat outfits in London. So there's this nightclub in London called Fabric, which to this day is still kind of the leading art-centered amazing selection kind of place you go to hear the best underground music. Mm-hmm. It's up there with like Bergain in Germany, different curation. But I worked with a couple of people where we had residencies at Fabric. So I got that from what in London, they call it dub plate pressure. <laughs> in other words, you work in the studio all week, then you take it out and you play it to a crowd. And part of the excitement of going and seeing those DJs was you would be hearing the newest shit straight out of the studio two hours ago. So that's like where the cutting edge was. So I'd had a good couple few years of testing instrumental music out with a crowd. 
but then working with someone like Bjork, who is one of the greatest performers on the planet, one of the most unique people, it's just like that times a hundred, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah. I think in a way, the thing that really impacted me was actually because I'd worked on countless records with people, but getting to go through the, you're in the studio, then you go out and do the full year and a half world tour, and then you go back into the studio. So there's something about her inviting me along on that process where my perception of the entirety of what an artist needs to hit, deal with what the cycle is. I mean that in a very positive way. It's mm -hmm. like, and, and Bjork was amazing in terms of she lets the albums be the albums and she lets the live shows be the live shows. I think also really working with her, I think it's a perfect metaphor for what we do in the studio, which is sometimes you come off stage and be like, that was an amazing show. I played great. But, you know, remember we actually played this show in Rio that was terrible. And I was like devastated with how we played as a band. It was our first one after, I don't know, six weeks off or something like that. I thought it was shit. But everyone still came up afterwards. I was like, oh my God, I cried. And it was like, yeah, Bjork singing. <laughs> right. You know them. So it was amazing in terms of I could nerd out with other dudes and be like, oh, yes, I've got a 32 channels of console. I'm running things through, you know, as, I can't even remember what the hell I was using now. But, you know, you nerd out about the details of what you're using. But it's like, yes, this person is actually singing it and running the show. My running joke was actually like, yeah, we could fart in a bottle on stage. And if she was singing on it, people would cry. <laughs> oh, oh yeah. Yeah. So so I, I just by that, I mean, it's like you really realize the human connection is what drives this stuff. And even though a lot of the stuff I do is more technologically based, you're looking for that human impact, which mostly just comes from being very direct, really like not holding back, yeah. putting it all on the line kind of thing. Take, take me back to, you mentioned the moment when you're, I think your parents were in Saudi Arabia and you were, mm -hmm. you were away from them and then you got a four track. Am I making that timing connection Right. Yeah. Yeah. Loosely speaking. Yeah. Tell me about your first exposure to recording in that way and what it opened up in you. Well, actually, I think the first time I recorded my folks job in Saudi Arabia was kind of nuts because everyone, this is like early 90s, I think 93, 94, they were out there. So their job would fly us out to Saudi Arabia twice a year. And I think they would come to New Zealand twice a year and then we would send each other faxes. But this one time I was out, my dad was a doctor, so we we're in this compound outside Jeddah. And they were like, oh, you should meet Mark Salvetta. He has a recording studio in his apartment. So they sent me around to see Mark Salvetta, and he, he decided we were going to record a cover of Walk on the Wild Side by Lou Reed with me singing. I cannot sing. But he, was, he would just go, okay, do this, do that. And he had this little, I can't remember if it was a four or eight track task cam thing, a slightly bigger one. And so he was trying to get me to do harmonies, which I could not do. I'd never even considered trying to sing a harmony. So that was my first exposure. And then he was super nice. He let me just go over there while he was at work. So I kind of messed around with just trying to like record a couple of things. And then when I got back to Auckland, I think that was when I was like, okay, I need to get one of those. So yeah, sold my mountain bike and, and got one. But I, dude, I remember like looking at the manual and it's saying, this is a bus. And I was, could not, for the life of me, figure out what the hell a bus was on like a, a Fostex four track recorder. I think it's something like I had two inputs and I spent weeks trying to wrap my head around, hang on, the sound comes in here, but it goes out there. Or it took me weeks to figure out that's what it does. Right. So yeah, I mean, it's all a bit blurry, but you know, by that point, I'd just been playing riffs or whatever for a pretty long time and played in a band with a couple of friends at high school and we played every lunchtime and just kind of jammed. So that was my first exposure actually to jamming, whereas previously having always done the classical stuff where it's like rehearsals and here's your score. That was pretty, pretty cool to learn that. 
Did you ever consciously say to yourself, hey, this recording thing is cool. I think I want to do more of this. This is going to be my path along with whatever musical adventures you may or may not take. Yeah, there was literally as soon as I figured out people did it for a living, like I'd been reading sleeve liner notes for ages, but I actually think it would have been my friend Ben, who was the drummer I used to play with all the time. There was a careers expo at school or something like that, like halfway through our last year of high school. And, and he just asked the person, like, what about audio engineering? And she said, oh, yeah, there's a school of audio engineering in Parnell in Auckland. Because, I mean, it's, it's so hard trying to explain to my kids and stuff that there was a time where literally all the information you had was what your friends knew and mm. the library. But if you didn't know what to look for in the library... So it was just like, oh my gosh, you can actually go and do that. But I was obsessed with all my records. So I was like obsessed with the sleeve liner notes, who all the producers were. I had favorite producers. I was obsessed with how records sounded. But it was a little bit like we used to have a subscription to National Geographic magazine. And you'd see people traveling all these amazing places. But it wasn't until you go, oh, you can actually go there. <laughs> Some kind of weird like head thing where it's like it had never occurred to me that you could become a professional hockey player or whatever, or you could become a director. It was like, especially the South Island of New Zealand or New Zealand in general, it's agriculture and it's fisheries and it's forestry and that kind of thing. Like New Zealand's rad and the people are amazing, but it is not like now I'm in LA where every other person you meet is off to a session or off to write a movie or whatever. And so, so it's just like not really in my realm of reality in terms of this is a thing that actual people do. It just was that kind of abstract. But yeah, the second I figured it out, my high school yearbook, it was like, what do you want to do versus what do you think you're going to be doing? And I was just like record producer on both of them. So there's a definite switch that flipped and it was the only option in my life from like age 16, something like that. Mm -hmm. Literally no other, no other interest. Do you remember the first time you set foot into, we'll just say a professional studio? You, you know what I mean? It's like yeah. console, tape machine, live room, et cetera, et cetera. You know what's really sweet about that, Matt, is uh, it was an amazing guy in New Zealand called Chris Van de Geer, and he was actually just up in LA a couple of weeks ago. So I got to like catch up with him the first time we'd seen each other since 1995 or 1996, but he's very pivotal to a lot of the stuff that happened in New Zealand. There is a music instrument store called, I think it's Buffalo Bill or Bungalow Bills, I can't quite remember, but I was in there looking at guitar pedals and I overheard a guy at the counter asking him about the studio. By then, high school was done, I was doing SAE, and so I was like, oh, the guy's got a studio. So I just went up and asked him, like, hey, do you have a studio? I'd, I'd, I'm doing SAE, I'd love to help out. And he gave me Chris's number, and Chris let me just go in and sit in the corner. He didn't ask me to do anything, but such a kind, generous guy, and he's probably one of the biggest influences on me, just seeing the energy and the disposition that he had around artists and the way he could radiate a sense of positive calm. But when I first went, I was like, oh my God, this is pretty, you know, it's pretty next level. And he would do really nice things. Like I'd say, hey, Chris, why is it that on one piece of equipment, the meter goes to the right and on the other one, it goes to the left? You know, <laughs> Great so he, he would very, yeah, ex, you know, explain compression and stuff for me. But I'd like bake scones and take them into the studio and then, you know, just go and coil cables and that kind of stuff. So, yeah, nice guy. Did that experience just continue to add fuel to the fire for you to continue forward? Yeah, I mean, it was it was already a, like there is no other reality that's going to happen. But I think what was so amazing about that was that I got into there pretty early on into SAE. But as soon as I'd actually seen people working, everything that I learned was completely different, if that makes sense. So you suddenly really tangibly understand stuff. So instead of it being theoretical, you could have just imagine it in action. 
And I think about that a lot with people who are trying to learn now, like the difference between just sitting in a room while work is happening versus reading about it, watching a tutorial or something like that. All information is fantastic, but it's such a like a missing link. You said something there in terms of disposition around artists. And I'm curious if his early influence carried through with you to how you conduct yourself around artists that you're working with. Absolutely. I mean, I think everyone is their own kind of character. And I think in anything creative, you need to be yourself and find the people who are on your wavelength. And overall, I'm like a pretty chill guy. I joke with artists sometimes, my production style is not gun on the console. My production style is like water over stone, just like (laughs) calm and relentless and kind of smooth away at stuff. But definitely just seeing, I think it was literally just sort of like, he'd say like, hey, no problem. Can you give me one more? Just really simple stuff like that instead of like, oh my God, I made a mistake. Fuck, what am I going to do? You know, and just like, oh, you can just hit record again. I, I just, we have to back up a bit because you said something that I don't know if, I think I caught it. Right. Was that a Phil Spector comment? Uh, yeah. Okay. So for the younger audience, Phil Spector, very famous producer, just Google him. The gun on the console comment there that Damien made is in direct reference to Phil Spector. And that's a very, uh, I love the comparison of, uh, cool. what it, so it was gun on the console versus. Versus like water over stone. Yeah. Just so smooth. Yeah. But but I think it's really important. Like, I think we can assume that, especially when it comes to being a record producer, it's like, I'm the authority, you're going to do what I say. And I think that a lot of artists, especially early on, they might have an experience with someone like that that really leaves a bad taste in their mouth. So for me, my fundamental philosophy about artists is my job. Like, what I love about it, this is my personal style, is I love getting on people's wavelengths. And I view getting to know an artist and the way that they see the world is for me like, oh, I'm flying to Iceland and what's it like in Reykjavik? You know what I mean? Or we're going to Mexico City. What's the vibe like here? Like, it's interesting to explore an artist's world. And then, you know, we can get into all this, but I have I've spent years in almost every single niche in engineering and production and programming and everything. So then it's just a case of saying, okay, what do we need from my basket, <laughs> from my skill set? to add to this to amplify for me to help you get to where you want to go more effectively as opposed to if you work with me you enter into damien's world and then i damienify you when you work with somebody and you're getting on their wavelength and you're you're like a chameleon when you do that how do you maintain a sense of like an anchor point for yourself so that you can see where this is going without getting completely derailed by following them on some acid trip and I'm making that like as, as kind of more of a metaphor mm-hmm. than, than the actual thing but just by taking their journey and being the water over the rock which I completely love that you do mm-hmm. how do you stay anchored how do you stay centered so you can be solid for them that is a, it's a broad question but first off if everyone knows where we're going then part of one of my skills is like I have a compass <laughs> do you know what I mean right yeah and one of the, one of those things is like, how much time do we have to make this record? So there's a very real practical thing. So we go from the very big picture stuff down to the nitty gritty. And, and I think one of the biggest challenges we have in making music is literally just what do we need to do next? So having a sense of how we're going to get through the tasks is very important. And within that, if you can go into stuff with a bit of a plan and also a clear sense of this is what we need to achieve right now, 
And until we've achieved this, we won't know what the other things are. So you kind of got to knock down the dominoes in order. But I think, again, it's not like my, I don't feel it's like my job or it's not my skill to know how it's going to sound when it's done. Right. For me, the fascinating thing about what we do is discovering how it sounds by doing it. But in terms of then that, how do you know? It's just what is your inner voice telling you? What is your gut telling you? And we can get very mystical and metaphysical if you want, but I really believe that there is an infinite source of intelligence and energy within every one of us. And if we can drop the judgmental mind or the mind that tries to control and abstractly understand what's going to happen before it does, then that is our most powerful guide. So it's a case of listening out for that voice. But for me, it's more like I also want to amplify it in the voice in the artists that I work with. So I want to help them connect with that voice by hopefully providing enough certainty around them where their judgmental mind can drop away. So there's a lot of ways, there's a lot of ways we can do it. It's a little bit of a how long is a piece of string, but it all comes back to like, I'm curious what each artist is trying to achieve, not just aesthetically, like I'm, you know, I want this to sound like it was made in Kingston in 1976 but then remixed in Harlem in 1987 or something like that, and then remastered in Berlin in 2027 or something like that. But it's also like, literally, what are they trying to do with their career? With this record done, what's the result going to be for you? Is it going to get you the tours that you want? How's it going to move stuff forward? So when you have that broader context that you're operating in, it's much easier than to go down the rabbit holes with a sense of perspective. And so I find it quite easy just to, to have that link between all the different, the, the zoom out layers and the zoom in layers, basically. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app, and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Samply.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Samply.app. Check it out. I wonder if your production style and you'll have to excuse my serious left turn here. Do you think you parent the same way? It's funny you mentioned parenting. So full transparency, I'm divorced. My ex is Australian. My daughter was born in London. She actually just turned 17 today. Happy birthday, Elvie. 
Huh. My son is 12. My son was born in Canada. When we got divorced, my ex was like, I'm moving back to Australia. I was like, fair enough. So I fly back and forth. And when they were young, I was in the studios a lot. So the time I have with the kids is wonderful. But genuinely, what I learned from being a parent created massive breakthroughs in my work as a producer because one of the things I noticed was that something that seemed like a insurmountable creative obstacle can often be solved at toddler level. And I don't mean this in any kind of condescending or patronizing way, but it's literally just like, you need a snack, you need to have some juice, you need a rest. You know what I mean? It's like our, our bodies and minds get stressed and exhausted. And then that can stress us out so much that we can't see the big picture or we can't hear our, our inner voice, or we get folded over into doubt mind and all that kind of stuff. So, so I do like to help people kind of transcend any doubt mind where possible and then like make some clear decisions. And ultimately like, you know, when we're doing stuff, it tries something out and if it works or it doesn't, then if it works great, if it doesn't, you try something else. It's not rocket science what we do here. Yeah. Take a nap and come back tomorrow. Yeah. Or, you know, just take, we'll chill for 10 minutes. Yeah. When do you feel that you made a jump in, in, we'll just call it level for now, from being kind of like working with unknowns to working with somebody well-known and how did that come about? Very early. So I moved to London just before my 20th birthday. Mm -hmm. um, and by then I'd completed SAE and I'd been working as kind of like a runner full-time for a year for a composer in New Zealand and they, they built a studio. So I'd make cups of tea and run errands during the day. And then I'd like edit samples and stuff like that at night and do Foley and that kind of stuff. So early Pro Tools stuff. When I moved to London, my dream was to get into Strong Room or Abbey Road as an assistant. Of course, I sent out like CVs to 42 places. No one replied except for this one guy, Dominique Brett, who has a studio in Brixton in his living room, the literal living room of his house. And the dining room was like the live room. And I mentioned that I spoke a bit of French because I'm originally Canadian. He was French and his assistant was just leaving and he had a French band coming in. So I think it's like, oh, that could be handy. We'll get in this guy. So he ostensibly hired me to make cups of tea. But two hours into the first session, which was actually Stephen Severin from Susie and the Banshees was producing a singer. Dominic just looked at me and shrugged and walked out of the room. So he basically just left me to engineer anything that came through the door for a year, which is fantastic. So it was almost like an old school house engineer kind of role. And this was like, this. the studio was like kind of 15 pounds an hour back of Sound on Sound magazine kind of thing. So you'd get all kinds of stuff coming through. Towards the end of the year of me working there, I was like, shit, I'm not meeting anyone. I'm not making any progress. I'm in London. How am I going to get into the right circles? So, you know, I'd been looking at buying an ADAP machine and getting a job washing dishes and just trying to record bands in rehearsal rooms or something like that. But then a producer called Guy Sigsworth came to the studio because he had heard from one of the two outside engineers that came in in that year that there was this kid called Damien who was pretty good on Pro Tools. This is 1998 by that point. Mm. So a guy came in, we got on really, really well. He had a remix to do and he had these concepts about what might be possible with digital audio, but he was like using an Atari ST and, um, you know, and an Akai sampler kind of thing. So basically I kind of like figured out by hand how to do what he was doing conceptually. He was like obsessed with hyper, hyper tight ultra dialed production like he was trained by trevor horn guy's musical background is insane but wow. he he co-wrote seal crazy in his bedroom and then trevor signed him so guy was basically his first big production stuff was in with trevor horn 
Trevor gave him the vocal comping master classes and then Guy's concept ran with what Trevor was doing and took it to the nth degree of insane detail. So he'd, he'd heard about Scritti Plitty using oscilloscopes to check phases between individual drum hits and stuff like that. And he had this theory that, oh, maybe you could do that with Pro Tools. So basically, Guy and I got on like a house on fire. I was, I was officially freelance with this studio, but I was like, Guy, I'm trying to go freelance. I'm trying to work elsewhere. Do you have any advice? And he was just like, oh, well, I, I've got a session coming up and why don't you come in and work with me? And as literally like overnight, I was suddenly in the next session with Strongroom Studio 3. We were doing a remix for Talvin Singh. For anyone who knows that era, that's kind of a big deal. Guy and Talvin were old friends. The next thing we did was working with Uncle, who I wound up becoming a silent member of, working in Olympic Studios on an Uncle remix of Stina Nordenstam. And then there was literally like the next thing we did after that was a remix for Björk. And Guy was flying back and forth to Denmark at the time when Björk was filming Dancer in the Dark and he'd go out there and play Celeste and they'd record stuff, then he'd bring back stuff and we'd mess around with it and that turned into the early stages of her album Vespertine. So once I worked with Guy, it was suddenly like broken to the circle and then we're working in all the good studios and there's a, a bit more nuance and a bit, you know, there's a lot that happened in there, but the... Pro Tools or DigiDesign back then, they released Mix Plus systems like a couple of months after Guy and I started working together. So we got one of the first ones in the UK. And thank God I persuaded him to get a programming room at Strong Room. So basically then I was at Strong Room like 24 hours a day for a couple of years. I was roommates with the guys who ran the bar just there around the clock. And every time I was in the kitchen, I'd say hi to people. So I just met endless people in there and because I was doing crazy shit with computers that no one was doing yet like in the box was still like eight years away as a term you know what I mean right right <laughs> delay compensation and pro tools did not exist yeah yeah so we were really pushing the boundaries of what you could do there and guy had these crazy concepts but also because I'd had this post-production experience in New Zealand there's a few moves that the engineer this guy Luke Tomes in New Zealand told me about like how you can move stuff around within regions to try to get the sync point right so Guy and I just went absolutely mental in terms of now that you can take any piece of audio and shred it up into a million pieces what are the creative possibilities with this so there's a really nice kind of confluence of a lot of factors but yeah it's just something like met everyone and that one pivotal moment wound up being the big domino piece that changed the game for me. The kind of undercurrent to this that I think is important for people to think about is who you spend your time with. And you and this producer just getting on as you did and the arrival of Pro Tools. I got my Pro Tools rig around that, 97, 98. And had you been with somebody who was like, oh, that computer shit's not going anywhere. It would have been a very different story, but you found a kindred spirit there and it really changed possibly, it, it could have gone any number of directions, but it really went in a positive direction as a result. Yeah, it was like blind luck combined with obsession. I mean, what's funny about the Pro Tool thing, this is a great story, is I was living in Brixton. For anyone who doesn't know, Brixton in South London, amazing, amazing place. And especially as someone who'd been in New Zealand, just like the multiculturalism there was amazing. But lots of guys selling like Kung Fu VHSs out of like boxes in the markets under the arches or whatever. So I'd like buy these VHSs and watch all these Kung Fu films, just like with my flatmates, like a bunch of stoner 21 year olds or whatever watching Kung Fu films. And I remember one day going, every single Kung Fu film winds up with a practice sequence about two thirds of the way through. And they, they do this massive skill level up. And then I remember going into the studio in Brixton 
and just going like, what would happen if I could make editing on Pro Tools as second nature as the practice sequences in Kung Fu films? Do you know what I mean? It's like, wow, kind of thing. And it was right. just like, it's kind of a funny joke. But Dominic had a mouse mat. It was like the DigiDesign mouse mat of the keyboard shortcuts in, right. in Pro Tools. I literally just memorized the mouse mat and was obsessed with Kung Fu films. <laughs> Does everyone know like Naval Ravikant? Have you heard of him? He's famous in Silicon Valley kind of guy. There, yeah. there's, he's a really great philosopher and communicator around it. But he has this idea about what he calls specific knowledge, which is just like be obsessed with the things that you're going to be obsessed with. Because, for example, if you or I tried to be the best sprinter in the world then we're in a very, very, very large pool of which there's only going to be one person who's the best. But if we're going to try to be the best sprinter who carries fruit while reading Tolstoy or whatever, then very quickly you narrow it down to a field of one. So kind of absurd examples. But for me, obsessed with records, watching Kung Fu films, Pro Tools is pretty cool. Like that's enough stuff to just get a little bit of a differentiator that when the right person comes in, it kind of gives you a whole breakthrough and a whole different way of thinking about stuff that differentiates you. And actually around that time, I was phoning up management companies all over London. I was trying to get a break. I was phoning up studios, still constantly banging on doors. And it was just, no one was really interested. So it kind of took Guy turning up and the kind of combination of both of our weird interests, because he had his very strange interests as well. But yeah, then that kind of created a story which built a reputation. And then I wound up actually being hired by a ton of mixers and engineers in London, either to do a combination of like creative programming, kind of the creative side of what you could do with that technology, but also because Guy trained me so well in what you can do with vocals. And because I extrapolated what you could do with a one bar break out across to entire performances, a lot of indie mixers and producers started hiring me. So I got a really nice combination of the corrective side as well as the creative side which just got me in a room with a ton, a ton, a ton, a ton of people. So I just got to sit in on so many different sessions with different artists and engineers and producers and, you know, some of the best rooms in London for a period of about five years, which is pretty, pretty amazing kind of grounding. Yeah. It'll be in the, the show notes about this information. Of course, you've worked with The Prodigy, you've worked with The Killers, Arcade Fire. What I want to know, though, is... Where were the points in your career where things were stalling out and what did you do to get out of the rut there in those moments? So what's hilarious is almost constantly things are all, all, almost always constantly stalling out. <laughs> it's like we're like this airplane flying at very, very low speed that's constantly at risk. So, God, it's almost like roll a dice and pick a moment. I mean, ultimately... Bit of a tangent here, Matt, if that's okay. Can we get the thumbs up for tangent? Uh, two, two thumbs up for tangents. Okay, cool. So everyone had lockdown era experiments, right? Right. And for me, lockdown was just like chance to zoom out a little bit. And that thing you're talking about with the people that you spend the time with is really important. The year before lockdown, I wound up back in New Zealand in the same South Island town. It was last, I looked after my dad for the final four months of his life. He had a terminal brain tumor, so I got to spend very precious time with him. But that really got me thinking about the fact, oh man, I'm a really long way away here from LA or London or New York or whatever, or one of the recording centers. And I was very lucky that my parents were British so I could just get a British passport and move to London, but most people can't do that. So I was just thinking about doing the internet differently and about the fact that we're at a point now where I'm in my mid forties now and I don't have an assistant. I'm not working in a large room, multi-room studio and all the people that I learned from just by working with them and being in the room with them I wasn't passing it on, basically. So 
I had this vague feeling of how do we do the internet differently combined with basically realizing like, oh, I'm the same age the guy was when I started working with him. So when lockdown happened, I just took that as my opportunity to learn a bunch of stuff. Part of that is I built a whole bunch of stuff online. We'll get into that at some point, but I've studied a lot of higher level business stuff. <laughs> and when we're, this, this is the point ever, we're coming back onto the, onto the main point here. Working class audio implies working, right? So you have clients and you're doing a job, but we can get so locked into what's happening in the studio that we forget that it's a business and business ultimately comes down to, do you have customers and are you making sales? So it's leads and sales. Yep. So anytime things start stalling out, it's just, are you telling enough people about what you're doing? In other words, are you putting yourself out there or are you fulfilling well enough on your existing projects? So are people coming back and are you discovering new people? So the, the examples I was giving you in London when I first broke out, so to speak, the, and everyone, this is like, this wasn't broke out like, oh, Damon's suddenly a record producer. It took me another 10, 12, 15 years to start getting those gigs. I just mean literally being hired to be in the room and perform a service for someone making a record. So I think part of it is we forget that we're performing a service. But at that time, the story was, oh, there's a crazy kid doing mad shit with computers. And because everyone was still either working on tape or on Akai samplers, the result that you could get both in terms of the effectiveness of time, the effectiveness of quality, and the degree of creativity, it was a, a quantum leap. So anytime things stall out, coming back to the when things stall out, it's just like, have I been offering my services to enough people? Yeah. So the most basic business thing is, have you been actually offering stuff? One of the things I've learned in online business is it's just like, if you want to make more money, put more offers in front of more people. It's that simple. And if you don't have an offer and you don't have people to put it in front of, how do you expect to be working? Right. Yeah. It's, 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 so it's very straight so that, ahead. That's, that's part of it. Then, you know, we get into stuff like, in a way, the phase that I had in London was so effective that I actually wound up painted into a corner. I, I'd gone through a few managers, but I had six years working with Sandy Dvorniak at This Much Talent. Sandy is fucking awesome. We had a really, really great time together. But I remember we had a meeting at one point and most of the studio managers in London, so sorry, most of the producer managers had been studio managers. Hmm. And I remember realizing like, oh, I haven't had any kind of a production or co-production credit for like a few years. I've been really busy, but I haven't had any of those kinds of credits. And you suddenly realize, oh, I'm like Studio C in someone's building. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And, yeah. and because I made these big ways as like Damon does crazy shit on Pro Tools, so then it was like, oh, just Damien's the Pro Tools guy. You know what I mean? But my mission had always been, I'm going to produce incredible records. So sometimes you have to reinvent or evolve the big picture story around you. And bizarrely enough, one of those breakthroughs was when I was touring with Bjork. You could imagine if you're in Bjork's band, you can basically go up to any kind of indie dude and say hi. You know what I mean? Because because I'm hanging out with Bjork, suddenly I'm cool. And I'm the kid who used to get beaten up at school. I had glasses. It's like, you're not fucking cool. Fuck off, nerd geek boy. And then it's suddenly like, Bjork was kind enough by association. I could just talk to people. <laughs> oh, yeah. So I met a ton of people, but they were meeting me in the context of like, I'm playing crazy instruments in Bjork's band, not I'm coming in and tightening up their drums or doing some crazy drill edits or whatever. So you're meeting people in a very different context on a different continent often. So they don't have the same preconceptions about who you are or what you do. It's a little bit mysterious. So sometimes coming in fresh and meeting a new wave of people is really important. It's just like dating in high school, right? If you have a crush on someone in high school, you've been in school with them for like years and you're going to be in school with them for another couple of years, telling someone you like them is basically the most terrifying thing. 
because it's a small chance that they like you back. And if they don't, they're going to tell all their friends and you're going to get pummeled for like, you know what I mean? <laughs> right. Whereas, <laughs> whereas once you're in your 20s and you're out meeting people, it's, it's a bit like you can be more open, but it's lower stakes. Possibly a terrible analogy there. No, Matt, no, but, but I totally get that analogy. So it's, it's on one level, it's just like, are you telling enough people about what you're doing? And then there's the bigger things about like, what season of your career are you in? And where do you want to go? So I do a lot of work now actually with people where they may have built quite a successful career in one part of our industry and they want to pivot a little bit. A great example is I'm working with a couple of people at the moment who have like decades long careers, more involved in the live side of things, either as musicians or like building out touring rigs and all that kind of stuff. And they, they've got kids and they want to mix at home. They've always been mixing, but they don't have a career as a mixer. So it's like, how do you actually put it out there to the world. This is what I'm doing right now. So actually controlling your own narrative is an important part of it. hundred percent agree. That's great. I want to talk about the management thing. Did you get management somewhat early on in your career? Yeah. Guy's manager, Tracy Slater, who's rad, managed me as soon as Guy wanted to start working with me. So I went freelance a couple of weeks before my 21st birthday and had a manager. She's Spike Stent's wife. So basically, like, my hero's wife was managing me. Spike is one of my many heroes. And Spike was so nice and so generous. He lent us his rig when we were working at Olympic. He had a couple of really nice chats with me. And he's amazing, super generous influence early on. But it was funny. It took me probably another five years to realize that that was both amazing and terrible. Because there was one time when I spent two weeks trying to get Tracy on the phone because someone else wanted to hire me. Tracy and I stopped working together after maybe like a year and a half. I got a bit shitty about stuff. I was a bit unprofessional. And so we parted ways or whatever. But it was, it took me to realize, yeah, of course, someone who's doing amazing, huge mega deals with basically the best person in the country probably has better things to do than answer your phone call. And so there's a thing with management where this thing we're talking about with our narrative. Yeah. So it's like when a manager actually has something to manage then they can really work with you really well. Like my manager now, Jeremiah Grabber, we've been working together for about seven years. Jeremiah is the literal best. We have the best relationship. He's, he's such a great outlook on music. His whole philosophy around music is just like, I like music, I want to help people make great records, incredibly experienced. But he like really grows with me. So when I phoned him, I was like, Jeremiah, I'm kind of messing around on the internet. Do you mind? And he's like, yeah, go for it. You know, he has a really nice perspective. But if we're coming into management saying, I need work, can you give me work? Then they don't really have a story to tell. Right. You know what I mean? They don't, there's not enough shape to you. So I've had also extended periods without management when you kind of got to figure out what's going on. Essentially surviving in those early stages, actually even up till now, how did you manage your survival? Did you work other gigs? Did you diversify at all? And then did having management when, when you've had it over the years, have they brought you work? Because it's my understanding that producer engineer managers generally don't bring you work. They just handle what shows up. In general, yeah. I would say like it's 80-20. Jeremiah, I think my manager now, he is across a lot more opportunities and he has got me a lot more meetings. But it tends to be your relationships are what do it and what keeps you busy. Actually, Sandy wound up getting me quite a lot of gigs, but it was because she could see my value to other people on her roster, if that made sense. Yeah. So she put me in with Tom Elmhurst when Tom Elmhurst needed a 
programmer Pro Toolsy guy. So I did stuff with Tom. She put me in with Dirty Geezer. She put me in with Tommy D. So it was amazing because I was getting put in with people, but it wasn't the same as labels phoning up saying, get me Damien Taylor. So that was where Sandy was amazing, where we had a really, really good run. But yeah, effectively, if you're not getting your own gigs, then the worst thing to do is expect a manager to get them for you. Because there's also like, you know, I was talking earlier about how it's really important for us to understand what our artists' goals are, both creatively and in terms of the growth of their business. Yeah. I think if we're working with management, it's really important for us to understand their business and what their motivations are. You mentioned parenting earlier. If we treat management or even we treat a producer or a studio like a parent, like they're supposed to provide for us, right? then that's basically a recipe for where stuff goes wrong. Whereas when you understand, like, you know, a manager is going to have all these people on their roster. To a certain extent, they're spread betting, but that's great. They have a very specific skill set, so we want to make the most of that. But yeah, in terms of making those connections and the meaningful connections, and getting yourself to a point where people really are compelled to want to work with you, that's where it's it's reaching out, it's building relationships, it's building a reputation. But prior to COVID and you going down this, this path of business exploration, we'll say, you've had times where you've managed your own career, correct? Oh yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. Right. But I mean, like I said, when I was 18, 19, I was, I was in the music store and I heard someone talking to Bill about his studio. So I went up and said like, hey, can I get into your studio, <laughs> you know? York Street in Auckland, famous studio, I like hit them up a bunch. You know, I was always hitting people up. When I moved to London, I hit up 42 studios to get me in the door. When the place in Brixton was starting to tail off a bit, I was hitting up all the other studios. And actually one guy got the studio at Strongroom and we were in there all the time and I became a fixture. After we'd been there maybe six months or a year, I was in the office and they said, oh my gosh, look, we found this in the filing cabinet. And it was the letter that I'd written to them and sent off saying, I'm doing Pro Tools and I'm really good and I think that you should hire me and I could you could set me up in a studio with a Pro Tools thing and I think people would really like it. The Killers Arcade Fire, I wound up working with them because I met them and I said, I would love to work with you at some point. So I'm always planting seeds, always, always, always. Okay, so, so let's dive into that a little bit because I think yeah. that is key for my listeners to hear. You can't, tell me if you agree with this, you can't just sit at home and expect... I've got a Pro Tools rig. People are going to call me up. You have to get out there and sell yourself. End of story. Yeah, totally. You, you have to press forward. You have to... It's like you were talking about your analogy about the girl you like in high school, right? You've got to speak up. You've got to say, I like you. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. you got to put your ass on the line, basically. And what's really interesting, I mentioned before, it's more offers in front of more people. And there's a real fundamental shift to go through, which is I think a lot of people are very shy about putting themselves out there or making an offer from someone because whether they realize it or not, they're looking at it one-sided. It's like, I want a career. I want to get paid to record. I want to get paid to mix. I want some money. I need to pay my rent. But when we can actually understand there is someone who has some music they need to get it out to an audience. They need it to sound the best it can. They need to feel that their vision has been magnified to the greatest possible degree. They want to go out on stage like fucking proud of this shit. They want to know that I can sing this song for the rest of my life and I fucking love it and it's amazing. And this is an amazing representation of who I am. And they need help. Do you know what I mean? So when it's like, I am here to help this person make a fucking amazing record, and you can bring that kind of energy into it. So that doesn't mean that you slide into someone's DMs going like, 
yo, uh, let's make a fucking amazing record. You know what I mean? But it's like when you have the the understanding of it's the combination of skill sets that can do something truly special. And even if we get into like old school business books, like there's an old saying, it's always look for the win-win. We, we just want our motivations, the results that we want to be in alignment with someone else. Right. And instead of I'm going to get on Matt's podcast and I'm going to take his listeners, it's like, no, we're going to have an amazing conversation about music. So it's just really thinking about what's everyone trying to get out of it. When I think about management, I genuinely think, what can I do to be a better fucking client for Jeremiah? Right. I love Jeremiah to bits. He's amazing. I'm so blessed to have him on my team. What can I do that's going to make it easier for him to run his business and make it like every time he sees Damien pop up, he's going to be like, oh, what's going on here? Not like, what the fuck does this guy want? How did the relationship with GPS and Jeremiah start? You know what? I actually, I had this amazing run of about six years with a manager called Liz Hart, a fascinating woman. She's originally from St. Louis, punk from St. Louis, super punk attitude. She wound up in London for many years working with XL Records and with beggars. And then she set up the New York office of XL Records in the kind of mid 2000s. So a really smart, really interesting woman. And then just she stopped working with XL at some point and started going into management. And then just a friend of mine was like, oh, you should meet Liz. So I, this was at a point where I'd been managerless for a number of years. And Liz and I met and we got on. She was like, I'll manage you. She had never managed a producer before, but she was fantastic. She was just this really brilliant energy. And she, she was like maybe like five feet tall, like really, really small, but huge personality. <laughs> not afraid to stand up for stuff. So so she was rad, but it was interesting. It was almost like as suddenly as she got into it, then one day I was actually down and I was seeing my kids and then I emailed an artist being like, hey, looking forward to getting back and, and starting this project. Is there any, any questions? And they were like, oh, I've been trying to contact Liz for like three weeks. We've gone with someone else. So basically suddenly Liz just stopped managing and it was kind of all cool. Her character, her interest changed. She's doing something else now. So I'd had this period of, of not working with anyone and I knew I was going to move to LA. At this point, it's late 30s. So it's like, my next move is critical. I'm going into this new phase of my career. I have to find the best manager. And I wound up doing meetings with tons of people. Somehow, didn't know about Jeremiah, never met him. I had one company I was about to go with and then it just didn't quite, it was all a bit weird. And then I suddenly got a email when I was up in Montreal. I, everyone, I was based there for seven years. I built a studio there and it was Jeremiah. And he was like, Hey, I saw you don't have a manager. Can I fly up and see you? And I looked at his roster. I was like, Holy shit. And we had actually indirectly talked a few years before when I was producing the Temper Trap, Australian band Temper Trap. And we had inquired about Billy Bush mixing. Yeah. So Jeremiah flew from LA up to Montreal. We hung out for a day and he was the only person that I'd met in the States that knew the weird British records that I'd done. And his energy was exactly right. And we just got on like a house on fire. So it's kind of nuts because he found me instead of me finding him and just gives the obvious person to work with. Wow. So that uh, is just serendipitous there. 100%. Yeah. Blind luck. Okay. <laughs> this is this is a paradox. That's like, you're, you know, you specifically mentioned people. If you sit there waiting for shit to happen, it's not going to. And I can say like the things in my career that have come to me is maybe like 1%. But every now and then they do. And again, if you want to get mystical, it's like the universe moves when it sees you taking action. So I was doing everything in my power to try to find the right person. And then it wasn't through my direct connection, but the right person totally did turn up. So to the, uh, let's say the, uh, the average audio professional listening, who's, they got some years under their belt. And in order to get management, like you said, you have to have something to manage. So one needs to be proactive. One needs to 
create enough momentum within your own world that it becomes painfully obvious that you need management and that's the time to act in that department. But other than that, it's not like, hey, I've been doing this for 20 years and haven't gotten anywhere. Uh, yeah. And right. I, I think a really important thing is it's not just that you're busy, but it's that I want to say like there's a bit of a story to what you're doing. And niche is a weird word, but for me, my niche is combining electronic and performance things. I'm like at, at the weird intersection of underground music and overground music, left field pop, blah, 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 blah. Combination of kind of like traditional British studio quality with bedroom studio punk rock energy of we can do whatever the fuck we want kind of thing. While being very, 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 very good at vocals. Like insane attention to detail on vocals, which is actually quite hard to find with people who are more underground leaning. Mm. So that's, you know, but honestly, dude, it's like you get one or two of those names on your discography and you, it is not like people beat a path to your door. Like I remember when I was, you know, early 20s and getting a couple of credits, it's like once this comes out, it's going to be game over. It's like the phone's going to be ringing off the hook and that totally didn't happen at all. But it's enough just to entertain the conversation with people. And actually, Matt, like a, an interesting side to the things messing up. After I'd done my whole Bjork phase, I started working with Liz and she was setting up quite a lot of meetings for me and I was actually blowing them left, right and center. When I moved to LA, I was blowing my sessions left, right and center because I was used to you meet someone, you get on, and then the label just puts you in a studio for a couple of weeks. So when I started doing stuff in the States, I didn't realize like, oh no, they're meeting like 20 other people. Yeah. <laughs> so it really took a different way of trying to understand what the person is doing and how to get on their wavelength and even actually interviewing them to just see like, are we on the same wavelength as well? Because sometimes you get put in these pools where you're meeting more and more people and there's not necessarily as much of a matchup as you might think. So we're about out of time, but I do want to bring up what appears to be a class type thing that you're doing, uh, Build Your Production Breakthrough. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. So everyone, just a broader context. During the lockdown year, I wound up streaming on Twitch three times a week. And that wound up helping me realize that the internet was a conduit through which I could start to recreate some of the experiences of networking, learning, and kind of just hanging out in the multi-room studios that I'd come up through. So through doing that on Twitch, I wound up setting up an online community called the Complete Producer Network. And that's just designed to be a very quiet, calm, supportive online forum to talk about music. So, you know, we know the big ones, but it's like on Reddit or on Gearspace that there's a ton of valuable information, but there's also a ton of assholes kind of thing. <laughs> I said it. We all know what we're talking about, right? So there's, there's a lot of very strong opinions. So I just wanted to have somewhere chill. And through doing all the stuff on Twitch, I wound up doing track feedback sessions back to back to back and saw a lot of the same issues that people were coming up with. So I wound up designing some programs just to help people in a very structured way learn a bunch of stuff. Build your production breakthrough. I was like, okay, I need to do a free workshop and... I've gone through a bunch of periods in my career when I knew I was trying to elevate the game of what I was doing in the studio. You hit this certain ceiling where suddenly it feels like you're fighting with a technology or you're reaching for something, but you're just working harder and harder and harder and in a way getting less and less results. So build your production breakthrough. I wanted to actually tie together a lot of very high level concepts that were the seeds of really big breakthroughs in my life. You know, we were talking earlier about how do you keep a session on track? It's this combination of being linked with a high level vision and then the low level nitty gritty. I wound up going on this little Sanyama, which is a, an extended journey of discovery for about four years in the mid 2010s. 
I was very frustrated with the limitations of what my technology would allow me to express creatively. It's like mixing worked great, writing was terrible, all this kind of stuff. We're running out of time, so I won't go into the full thing, but Build Your Production Breakthrough is really the principles that allowed me to kind of go from taking like three days to write a track to maybe three hours. It was also a lot of what let me actually start doing these LA writing sessions where you meet someone for an afternoon and you can suddenly get a result. There's a lot to it. It's about a three hour workshop. It's free. But yeah, it's just basically designed to help you work smarter, not harder. And a breakthrough is really when you change the rules of the game. So I know this sounds a little bit cryptic, a little bit mystical, but it's designed to help people really have a new perspective on the landscape that we're on and to just, yeah, change the rules of the game, increase their creativity, increase the way in which their vision is coming through in their work. I don't want to do all the spoilers or anything like that for now, but a nice combination of some high level philosophy and some very, very practical nitty gritty stuff in the studio. It's not like a music production workshop where I tell you how a compressor works. I think it's, for me, it's the, it's the glue that gives you a big picture map on how to move your career forward as well. For those of the audience that want to check that out, I will put a link in the show notes to DamienTaylor.com. If you go there and you scroll down, there's a little area you can say click for more information. So you can click there, hit register now, and then you can pick an event date and sign up and uh, that'll be there for you. So you can check it out. Awesome. Thanks, Matt. You know, if I didn't have to go make dinner for everybody, I would say, let's talk for another two hours. But Dude, we're just warming up. But actually, I would love to invite anyone in your audience. You can follow me on the grams. All the links are over. I'm here as Damien, D-A-M-I-A-N. But I set up the Complete Producer Network specifically to be a place where you could have some of these nuanced conversations around the weird stuff in music, the stuff that's not just like, which microphone are we choosing? So I'd love to invite you to come over there. You can just go to completeproducer.net. Any of the questions you have, anything we talked about in this podcast, just come in there, throw in a question. I'll be happy to follow up on that as much as we can. Matt will be posting, you know, all about this episode when it comes out, links and all that kind of thing to you as well. But yeah, Complete Producer Network is just like, I really want to have a, a place on the internet that's a bit of a different culture for people to talk about these questions that come up. But I try to try to get in there and help as much as I can. I love it. That's great, man. Well, thank you so much for your time and your information. Fascinating stuff. And hopefully we'll meet in person in the future. Look forward to it, dude. Thanks. All right. Take care. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LPUNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for, giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Damian Taylor here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. I know I repeat this all the time, but I'm I'm just asking. That's it. <laughs> Head on over to your podcast aggregator. Leave a five-star review. Let everybody know that this is a show that you enjoy listening to, if you enjoy listening to it, and tell a friend. That's all for me today. I want to thank the crew. That includes Anne-Marie Plow and the editing Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme song and the great Chuck Smith there at the top of the show with that beautiful voice. You know you can connect with me on LinkedIn and you know you can send me an email, matt at workingclassaudio.com if you need to get in touch. And until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, 
working class audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called audio life and quite simply put it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear including life hacks work-life balance health and hearing loss you know if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio this is a great place to go and check out so head on over to gearspace.com check out audio life many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com so check that out 